This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Garden of Sound with thanks to Taha Sparkling Tonic. I'm your host Ian Turner and it's a pleasure to be presenting an hour-long version of the show. This means you get to hear all of the questions I ask each week's guest and all of the songs they want you to hear. If you've got an ear for detail, then listen out for a question at the end of the show. If you're the first person to send in the right answer to that question, there'll be a lovely prize from Taha winging its way to you. Just listen out for that question at the end of the show. I'm also very excited to say that the first Garden of Sound live gig will be happening at Littleton Records on Tuesday the 17th of July. If you're at high school, you're in a band and you've got at least a couple of original songs under your belt, I want to hear from you. Just head to gardenofsound.nz and look for the Garden of Sound live link. Right, back to business and that business being showbiz. Today's guest is General Manager of Showbiz Christchurch, Michael Bailey. They're soon to be running Broadway Hitmen at the Theatre Royal, but way before showbiz, Michael was already finding his musical feet in the Hutt Valley. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Michael Bailey on Plains FM 96.9. How do you describe yourself in a working or musical sense? Well, I'm managing a theatre company. The theatre company specialises in musical theatre. My role is general manager, which covers all sins. So it is primarily uh, fiscal and managerial in the sense of coordinating people. Um, I'm not here in a purely artistic capacity, but they can't help but be crossover. So it's the day-to-day business of making sure the show goes on. Michael, what was the first memory of music in your life? The first memory of music, and it's actually probably a first memory to be frank. Uh, I was lucky enough to be the youngest son with three big sisters and um, my sisters were that little bit older than me, so I was kind of, you know, the toy to play with. And um, they took various turns um, with my bath time, um, just helping me in bath time and getting out of the bath, etc. And it was always singing songs. And that is genuinely my earliest memory, was um, singing songs at the end of bath time with my sisters. Can you remember any of those songs? Oh, I really can't. I, would, I want to say Rubber Ducky. <laughs> you can say Rubber Ducky if you... I, I think Rubber Ducky would have had to have been right up there, but, um, you know, I am talking about a time long, long ago in a universe far, far away, so some songs may have merged. Were they probably kids' songs or were they popular songs? No, the they would have been kids' songs. Absolutely kids' songs. Age-appropriate for Age-appropriate songs. And there wasn't... Um, so let's give this a date range. This would have been very late 60s. Um, and so popular music hadn't really infiltrated um, suburban New Zealand in such a wide way by that stage. Was your family musical? There was a lot of interest in music in my family. My dad could play a mean harmonica. Damn, he could play a fantastic harmonica. Um, My mum keeps passing down this collection of sheet music that she used to buy when she was a teenager of all of the pop songs um, from the 40s, all of the crooners of the time. She didn't play, but she loved um, buying that music and so it sort of keeps passing down through the family and we um, play it along. So have a, a love for all of those 40s and 50s songs. 
Did you receive musical instruction as a child? I did. I uh, had piano lessons um, from about the age of seven, uh, and I was trotted off faithfully to our local Anglican church and um, got to join the church choir. And that is, pro- I actually put pretty much all of my music from that time forward down to singing in, the t- in that church choir. Just a phenomenal experience with a, a brilliant music maker as the choir master. I think I just lucked in. And uh, there was a bunch of uh, boys all from the same suburb, all around the same age. Uh, and we all sang in the choir together and a number of them went on to careers in music. So um, perhaps it is co-related. Do you think you can have church without the music? No, no. God, um, how boring. <laughs> Sorry, the pun, <laughs> even unintended. Um, I am, uh, with the declaration here, I am agnostic. Um, so I'm not, I don't participate significantly in the church community these days, but um, when I go along to one or two family events, Christmases, etc., that are, are back in the church environment, uh, I really do keep finding myself th- thinking, wow, they've lost their music. And it was the music that was um, pulling everyone together and getting that sense of spirit and momentum. And the happy, crappy churches have got it. They actually understand the power of music um, to make people emotionally connect. Going through school, uh, were you performing in choirs or bands or in theatre? Yeah, uh, theatre came a bit later. Uh, There were choirs and schools. Um, I had a, a very fundamental influence for my form two year, I guess that's year eight in in the modern world, um, had a very, very musically motivated uh, teacher uh, and uh, he was a teacher that I think every child that ever studied with him will remember that one teacher as the one Uh, and um, he he was a fantastic motivator of kids um, but he was also very passionate about music and um, he really pushed and nudged me quite hard to express my musical skills. Um, I still have moments of embarrassment when I think back to things that I got up on stage to do in front of school um, at his pushing and I get reminded about it for years to come because, you know, when you're a boy soprano, year eight, and you're in front of a school of 500, um, they're not always kind. Obviously at some point the voice broke. It did. What was life like going from boy soprano to... Uh, Well, uh, it was one of those uh, winters which I think a lot of New Zealand boys experience. You you come out of summer with these um, skinny white stick-like legs. You put on long pants and come out the other end and and you go, oh gosh, they're all spidery now and my voice seems a lot lower. So it was not a a transition that I actively recognised. I just, um, you know, went into winter as a soprano and came out the other end uh, a Barry Tenor, um, and uh, I fell in uh, with another miscreant when I was about 13 um, who had a passion for music, uh, and this was a kid that was sort of slightly on the rougher edge of the tracks to me, uh, but um, I was quite drawn towards his, his musical interests and passions and tastes. Um, and he had an absolute passion for the Beatles, and he decided that he was going to be a rock star. Um, he couldn't sing, he couldn't play the guitar, but he said, I'm going to be able to do both of those things, and gosh darn it, he did. 
He uh, so the two of us um, formed the kernel of a band called Beethoven and the Greasies. This was in the third form year, <laughs> and they pulled a few other fellas together, and and we learned a few songs, and um, and entertained our neighbourhood with a couple of practices at my place. I believe that we went to the great heights of playing a couple of Samoan weddings um, because we had a Samoan bass player who went on to have an awesome career. He's an incredible session bass player. Um, I meandered off my own way, which is a great shame because that band actually stayed together and went on to become um, one of the seminal R&B groups uh, of New Zealand in the late 80s. Um, it uh, went on to become Chicago Smoke Shop and this um, young guy who loved the Beatles, um, his name's Darren Watson, and he's um, crafted quite an incredible career for himself um, as a solo artist um, specialising in blues and R&B. So what sent you off in that other direction? Oh, just life. <laughs> uh, you know, being a 13, 14-year-old kid in New Zealand, uh, every day presents its uh, challenges, and I was just busy getting to the end of each day intact. So what did you head off and do, aside from music? Oh, um, try not get beaten up. <laughs> and um, I, so I, I grew up in the Hutt Valley, and... Uh, early high school years were a bit rough around the edges um, but thankfully I found my way back around fifth form I think it would have been um, I gave up all music through the third and fourth form uh, but um, it, it came back and or I came back to it um, and then by sixth form I was starting to get involved in music groups again uh, and then that would have been when shows began did my first school show and Sixth form in, in Hartbury High School. What were those shows? The first one was a self-written show by one of our teachers, The Tale of Servius the Puny. I think. <laughs> think of a musical that's a little bit asterisk and oblix and um, get some good puns going in it. Um, but the uh, the one that really introduced me to the magic of musical theatre was Oklahoma, uh, which was my final year at school we were going to do West Side Story and we'd started rehearsing and I'd been cast as Tony which was um, something I was looking forward to but uh, believe it or not so many sh schools were doing West Side Story that year um, that we had our rights pulled so we just jumped over into Oklahoma and flipped over some of the casting and so I got to do one of the great classics of Rogers and Hammerstein. Did you have a featured role? In the uh, yeah I was uh, Curly. Tell me about that show. I mean, was it exciting? Was it, it was the first time you've done oh, it? Oh, it was, it was fantastic. It was the, uh, my first real full experience either on stage or as an audience member. I'd never seen a musical in my life. Um, I really didn't have that much understanding of the form. And if you're going to do one, that's the one to do. It's uh, Oklahoma uh, was the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that basically changed the shape of musical theatre forever. Um, and the character of Curly, it's the way that it integrated um, music, dance and drama into one entirely cohesive dramatic piece um, where everything that happens on stage is driving the story forward as opposed to prior to then, um, musicals being a little bit of, uh, you know, Fordervillian song and dance, mostly, you know. Here comes the funny bit. Here are the girls with the with the nice legs kicking them up. And um, Oklahoma was when you started to have all these shocking things, like the the lead character of the show killing another man on stage, and and the outcomes and the consequences of that. And um, and uh, the now 
very famous song, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, which opened the musical, um, very uncharacteristically for any musical of its day. Um, that was the very opening of the show. No dance numbers, no um, massive preamble, just a single voice from off stage beginning this beautiful, what I would call almost a lullaby, um, and bringing it onto the stage, and uh, history is made. Is Oklahoma your favourite musical? Oh, no. No. Uh, it's one I have a great deal of love for. Um, picking a favourite is, it's like picking a favourite child. <laughs> but if it was a life and death situation and you did have to save one of your children, which one would it be? Hmm. I have a particular love for the quite bombastic ones, the big sings. Um, probably my favourite of all time would one uh, be one which hasn't actually made the top 20, I've got to say, um, The Secret Garden, uh, which um, came through in the 90s based uh, on the book. It's um, musically just one of the most beautiful musicals of all time. Uh, I really love Sunset Boulevard, um, the, the Andrew Lloyd Webber one that didn't do as well as the other ones, but um, tremendous show. Uh, brilliant musically and probably the most integrated uh, musical and dramatic piece that he wrote. Uh, later this year we're doing Les Miserables. You'd be pretty hard-pressed not to keep that at the top of the list and uh, once it's back up on stage I'm sure I'm going to get swept up in the passion of it all. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who just live and breathe Les Mis. So there are many to choose from. Is there a track from one of those shows that you'd like to play? Yes, Secret Garden. And if you can, uh, the recording of Anthony Warlow singing it, certainly one of the greatest voices of musical theatre in Australasia. Strangely quiet, but now the storm simply rests to strike again. Standing, waiting, I think of her. I think of strange this Mary, she leaves the room, yet remains, she lingers on, something stirs me to think of her, I think of her, from death she casts a spell, all night we hear her sighs, and now a girl has come who has her eyes. She has her eyes. The girl has Lily's hazel eyes, those eyes that saw him happy long ago. Those eyes that gave him life and hope he'd never known. How can he see the girl and miss those hazel has her eyes. The girl has Lily's hazel eyes. Those eyes that closed and left me all alone. Those eyes I feel will never ever let me go. How can I see this girl who has her hazel eyes? In Lily's eyes a castle, this house seemed to be. And I her bravest knight became. My lady fair was she. She has her eyes, she has my lily's hair.
hazel eyes, those eyes that loved my brother, never me. Those eyes that never saw me, never knew I longed to hold her close to live at last in Lily's eyes. Imagine me a lover, I longed for the day she'd turn and see me standing there. Would God have let her stay? Listening to the Garden of Sound interview with Michael Bailey on Plains FM 96.9. So we've heard quite a bit about music theatre. That aside, uh, what was the first gig you paid money to see? The first big concert I paid money to see uh, was uh, um, good timing. It was Queen at Mount Smart Stadium in Auckland, um, 1985. Uh, and um, somehow I managed to get myself into the mosh pit front and centre, not far from the stage, and uh, if you're ever going to pick a first gig, man, that's the one. Uh, Freddie Mercury, for every myth, rumour and legend that you hear about the man, it's all completely true. The most incredible, incredible live performer, uh, charisma, that you simply can't bottle, you probably can't record, uh, to see Freddie live was something exceptional. Um, as a nice segue, there's a biopic I see that's just about to uh, hit the screens, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, so I'm looking forward to that early November. So tell me, at the uh, at the Queen gig, uh, was there anything in Freddie's performance that sort of inspired you or made you want to do what you were doing at that time any better? Like... Any 17 or 18-year-old, you know, I don't think all of my tastes were fully formed, but all the kernels of them were there. And Queen and Freddie and his persona um, really is this coming together of theatre, glam rock, almost operatic in proportion in terms of the drama this is there is nothing subtle going on here and uh when i thought about the first gig that i'd seen and then leading that into theater um the pathway's actually quite obvious uh because it is the most highly theatricalized expression of of a rock performance uh, he was a very uh conscious very aware uh, performer. Uh, yes, I think everything was done with a flamboyant freedom, um, but he crafted and created and made um, this glam rock image. Moving on from from Queen and Freddie Mercury and the operatic brilliance, um, 
have you spent any time um, in the opera world? I guess going back to those choir boy days, um, that put me on a classical path. Uh, I was given some great opportunities. Uh, I couldn't tell you whether I was as flat as a brick or whatever, but I think I must have been okay because I got given some quite extraordinary opportunities. Being in Wellington, um, it was the home of the symphony orchestra, um, and I got to do a number of treble solos with um, with the NZSO. Um, I remember one, so I would have been 11 or 12 at the time. Um, they needed a, a treble soloist. Um, I remember that very strongly. It was Joan of Arc, and we had all the soloists arranged across the front of the stage and um, I was not so silly as to not be nervous because this was uh, Wellington Town Hall, huge numbers of people, um, quite a big deal. And I remember looking at the female soprano soloist and she had quite a tall seat like a bar stool that she was perched on uh, and the legs of it were rattling on the stage because she was gripping the sides of it so hard that the entire chair was just shaking from side to side because she was absolutely petrified. Calmed me down no end. <laughs> so uh, coming up through that choral tradition, um, I that led to things like singing with National Youth Choir, who are one of the greatest choirs on the planet and sing the most incredible music, uh, and exposed me to a lot of world-class singers and uh, music in the classical sphere. So when I went to university in Auckland, uh, an opera company was being formed there, um, Auckland Opera. Uh, the opera company, after they built the hall for Dame Kerry to sing in, she was famous for saying, I'm never going to sing in New Zealand again, until uh, a barn was suitable for her talents. And so they built the Aotea Centre, and they formed an opera company around that. Uh, and um, at that time I would have been 20 or so living in Auckland and um, I had the right background musically and vocally and so I started singing in the chorus for the opera company. Um, that brought lots of fascinating experiences and, and not that you ever get to spend a lot of time one-on-one one -on -one with those soloists, but you know we had um, Dame Kerry and uh, a lot of top international classical singers coming through, so a lot of learning by osmosis. So were there any particular highs or lows during that time you care to regale us with? Just in terms of the people, there is no greater gentleman than Sir Donald McIntyre. Um, we got to do uh, The Flying Dutchman, and uh, by this stage um, I was actually doing a, a postgraduate year in opera um, that was being offered for the first time, and Sir Donald was our guest tutor, which was the most incredible experience. Uh, he is one of New Zealand's great singers. He was considered one of the great Wagnerian bass baritones of the world at the time. Uh, he started singing in a period where it was all a little bit looser and wilder. I, I remember a story of him getting to London and auditioning for the English National Opera and uh, them saying, oh, oh, jolly good, jolly good, yes, strapping lad can hold a tune, yes, I'm sure we could have you in the chorus, to which I believe he replied, I didn't come all this bloody way to sing in the chorus. <laughs> so they gave him a solo. Um, but, you know, this is the 70s. Uh, it's a bit tougher than that these days, I think. Uh, and he was just an incredible um, character to have around. Perhaps not the world's greatest vocal coach. He had, everything was sporting analogies. You know, he'd say, you've got to 
pick it up and uh, keep your eye on the ball and make sure you get your back swing right. And um, So I'm not sure how it all quite applied to the sung voice, but it all worked. So during your uh, opera career, at least, any, any real low points? Actually, I've got a high point. I got to understudy a role that was um, written for a New Zealand actor-singer, um, uh, Peter Elliott. Um, it was a production of Deflator Mouse, and uh, they wrote in this new character for him to contemporise the opera and make it more accessible for the audience. So cast a TV star, um, and uh, he was narrating the plot. And as was the wise thing to do, they had an understudy. Uh, so I went along to the production rehearsals and had the script and watched what was going on stage and went home and dutifully learned all the words and learned the songs that he sang, etc., etc. But I didn't get any rehearsal time because they're busy getting the show ready to go. Uh, the, sh the show itself was going to perform in Wellington and then in Auckland. And so uh, I flew down to Wellington for the production week, sat out in the house during the rehearsal process and just took my notes, etc. All well and good. Um, show opened, got great reviews, was having a good time, so I went back to Auckland. Uh, I got a phone call one day about 12.30 saying, uh, Michael, yep, where are you? Uh, I'm on Queen Street. Why? Um, we'll have a car coming to get you in about five minutes' time. And so uh, he got very sick, um, quite a few of them did, uh, and I was told that I was going to go on that night in Wellington while I was standing in Auckland. So um, they picked me up five minutes later, um, nipped past my house on the way to the airport. I grabbed a script, was going through it hell for leather, just making sure that I had learnt what I thought I'd learnt. Um, get down there and his character um, had a flying harness suit which had to be customised to me and prosthetics, um, special makeup things which had to be custom made all that afternoon. And the director got me at the front of the stage and said, OK, say the script. And I just stood there at the front of the stage and babbled off the whole thing. Anyway, long and the short... I'm just manhandled from person to person to person. Um, music, run this, say this, fit this. I sit down and I'm thinking, oh, right, okay, I think I'm ready now. How long have I got? And I'm thinking, I'm going to have an hour to prepare myself for something. And they said, beginners, uh, which is uh, theatre talk uh, for uh, the curtain goes up in five minutes and you need to be in your spot. My spot was flying from the rafters behind the curtain. So when the curtain came up, I was just flying in the middle of the stage in this large bat-like cape. <laughs> so that's somewhat of a rush. Did you feel adequately prepared for that moment? I felt blessed that I'd done my homework. Uh, so uh, the first thing that you ask an understudy to do is survive. And then after that, you ask them to be excellent. Uh, I can tell you that I survived and other people will be able to pass judgment as to how well I did. But it, um, the show went really well. Um, everyone came back um, full of praise. I sat down in my dressing room desperate for whiskey at the end of the show. <laughs> Have you had any interaction with Deflator Mouse since that, that time? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I haven't done a lot of operas since then. So whether it's opera or it's music theatre or, mm. it's, or it's glam rock potentially, what would be your uh, favourite bit of music? This sounds extremely bombastic and a bit large. But um, it's, um, it's Mozart's Requiem, uh, Mozart's Requiem Mass, which is a big piece of music, cause, so you could say I'm cheating there because I'm getting a, a whole lot for the one. <laughs> for the one the complete works of the Beatles. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but I, I just uh, adore Mozart's Requiem. I could listen to it 
again and again and again and if I was whisked off to a desert island and told there is one and one only piece that you can take with you that would be it. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Michael Bailey on Plains FM 96.9.
Have you tried Taha Sparkling Tonic? It's made right here in New Zealand from the best natural ingredients. Manuka honey, organic ginger and kawakawa. The medicinal benefits of these three are well known, but when they're combined, you get a healthy taste sensation that's out of this world! Fortunately, you can buy Taha right now from supermarkets, cafes and bars all over New Zealand. Find out more at taha.nz. Taha, it's where you belong. You're listening to the Garden of Sound interview with Michael Bailey on Plains FM 96.9. We'll be back with Michael Bailey shortly, but first I want to thank Taha Sparkling Tonic for sponsoring today's show. Taha's made from ginger root, manuka honey and kawakawa. Now you may not have heard much about kawakawa, but it's been used by Māori for hundreds of years because of its anti-inflammatory properties. And it can also protect the liver. Not to mention Taha is super tasty too. If you'd like to find out more about Taha, then please visit taha.nz or ask for it at your local supermarket. Right, back to the show. We're talking to Michael Bailey, General Manager of Showbiz Christchurch. And we pick up the interview as I ask Michael to tell me about the most difficult part of putting on a show. The planning process towards a show is an incredibly long one. Uh, No one, when they go to the theatre, wants to be told how complex the piece is in front of them and how many years of work have gone into it. Uh, But that's the reality of it. And especially once you get towards a large-scale musical where you're filling a a one to 2,000-seat theatre and you're looking at a work that has been a long time in its gestation period, um, there is a lead-in of years. So I guess the hardest point in any musical is that moment when you say yes we're going to do this one because you put balls into motion that can take three or four years of travel towards opening night and that's uh that's a lot of planning a lot of coordinating with other people because you can never create a musical by yourself Um, a large-scale musical is built and peopled by a community or a village. Um, There are designers, set designers, set builders, uh, musicians of course, but then uh, performers, backstage, technician, etc, etc, etc. So when we do uh, a relatively standard show for showbiz these days, the actual show season directly involves about 150 people. So we've just uh, finished uh, a season where we had if you include the orchestra, the backing vocals, and the performers on stage, that was 71 performers, so this is a season of Wicked. Uh, And then once you take the backstage crew, so that's everything from flies, lighting, props, wigs, makeup, wardrobe, um, sound, all the various assistants, every single person of whom has an essential job, that if they are not doing that job, the show collapses. Um, there's 80 people back there so you know you've got sort of 150 or so people working in concert to make what may look like one person standing on stage singing a solo. There are much larger musical works but um, in the scale that I've experienced musical theatre is at the peak of coordination and bringing together the talents, desires and skills of a large number of people to make a single moment. In a lot of the music theatre I've done, it's been very male-dominated behind the scenes. 
directors, music directors, do you think there's an imbalance between men and women in those particular roles? As there are in so many industries, um, there is a rebalancing going on. If you look into the history of Broadway, the West End, and even New Zealand theatre from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, yes, a lot of the artistic positions uh, were male-driven, I think partly a reflection of society. There are economic elements that come into play as well here. This is going to get into touchy political territory, but ultimately, in order to get to the top of your game within theatre, especially as a director or a producer, you've probably had to go through an extended period of quite lean times. So you've had to work for very little or never had to at some point of time sidestep and say oh wait a minute I have to go and earn money for someone else I have to raise a family or I have to make a commitment towards a house or or, all these other things is there a generation of female directors coming through and directing major musicals at the moment no and I still think it actually partly comes down to an economic argument surely there must be women out there living on the smell of an oily rag, really passionate about their their craft. Once we identify where the holes are, the desire to fill the holes becomes much stronger and far more apparent. And there are works being created now specifically by women, for women, like a a major musical, oddly enough, my favourite, I said, The Secret Garden. Female composer, lyricist, producer director based on a book written by a woman. I don't know how conscious a choice it was, it must have been, but that was a project that was very much driven through and through um, by the female artistic persona. What encouragement would you give to young women out there who want to break into theatre, into directing roles, into musical direction roles? Of course, a musical director is a, a skill set, a very pure skill set where you have to have core musical ability and knowledge. So, of course, study those specific skills. Uh, frequently, not all, but many uh, musical directors are, are very strong pianists. Um, go to a tertiary institution where you're going to study conducting, um, study elements of musical direction specific to musical theatre. There are societies in every city of New Zealand, um, North Canterbury at the moment, um, their current musical director, uh, uh, Leanne Mahoney, does a lot of MDing out there. Uh, I think their last musical had had a different musical director, also female. Um, As a society, uh, I went out there, my daughter was auditioning for The Sound of Music, and I was absolutely delighted to come along to an audition panel where the director, the musical director, the choreographer, the production manager were all women under 30. Um, So it's definitely happening. It's at a a grassroots level and at a community level, but um, many people who have created careers, they start those careers learning their craft, um, doing community theatre. So what's next for Showbiz Christchurch? Our next show is a concert called Broadway Hit Men, the hits of Cole Porter and Andrew Lloyd Webber. So um, every year, mid-year, we do a concert. 
we um, bookend our year with a major musical in April and one in September. Uh, in the middle of the year, we, uh, we do a concert which just gives us a little bit more variety. It can be more inclusive in the sense of people that wish to be involved. The musicals are far more uh, prescriptive as to who we can cast based on a variety of skills, ages, sizes, etc. Um, but the concerts are far more em embracing. Um, so really looking forward to that actually, two of the greats of musical theatre, Cole Porter uh, wrote over 800 hit songs um, and a lot of songs that people will know so incredibly well these days but they may not necessarily know where they know them from, um, everything from um, Night and Day, I Get a Kick Out of You, Anything Goes and these are songs that are being recorded by um, Michael Bublé, Katie Lang, uh, Lady Gaga, um, this is quite contemporary repertoire or being repurposed as contemporary repertoire um, and then the second half Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, some of the biggest hits in musical theatre. Is there anything from Broadway Hitman that you'd like to play? I would love to hear anything sung by Katie Lang.
is the Garden of Sound interview with Michael Bailey on Plains FM 96.9. Have you tried Taha Sparkling Tonic? It's made right here in New Zealand from the best natural ingredients. Manuka honey, organic ginger and kawakawa. The medicinal benefits of these three are well known, but when they're combined, you get a healthy taste sensation that's out of this world! Fortunately, you can buy Taha right now from supermarkets, cafes and bars all over New Zealand. Find out more at taha.nz. Taha, a drink from the edge of the world. You're listening to the Garden of Sound interview with Michael Bailey on Plains FM 96.9. So looking ahead uh, to the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years even, what's your biggest unfulfilled dream or plan Christchurch is experiencing an extraordinary renaissance at the moment I think that we can proudly say and go out on the street and contest with fisticuffs anyone who disagrees that it is the heart of musical theatre in New Zealand there are some incredible shows being staged here but it's beyond what showbiz is doing Um, wonderful shows at the Court Theatre we've got NASDA the Performing Arts School um, where students are doing a three-year full-time course specialising in musical theatre. Um, we have all the wonderful technical companies, Scenic Solutions, are building the majority of sets for all of the touring shows going around the country. Uh, we have um, Light Sight, Bounce, etc. So we've got a whole network of incredible companies, incredible individuals, uh, uh, Stephen Robertson, Richard Merritt, Harold Moot, um, respectively uh, stage director, musical director, designer. Um, there is a wealth of expertise based in the city that know more about musical theatre um, than you could learn in a dozen lifetimes. So uh, musical theatre is very healthy here. Uh, traditional theatre, the court theatre, um, is now the largest performing arts organisation in Australasia in terms of the number of people working within that company. Um, they're having annual attendances of over 150,000. If you take in all their school programs, etc., by any measure of success, um, the Court Theatre is certainly the most thriving 
theatre company in New Zealand. So we've got two bases covered. At the moment, the city is um, lacking a third side to the triangle. Um, I would love to see homegrown opera come back to Christchurch. It's something that's been part of our culture um, from uh, 90s, early noughties, etc. Um, you had Canterbury Opera, which merged through into Southern Opera. Um, but with the circumstances of the earthquakes and, and everything else, the heart of a locally based company no longer exists here in Christchurch. Um, opera is delightfully serviced by New Zealand Opera who come to town bringing um, big productions in and we certainly would never want to see that stop. Um, but that doesn't really help the grassroots experience. And the only way that an art form is really going to bloom and grow is if you're getting youth involved in it and um, you've got courses which are exposing and training and developing and giving organic opportunities to uh, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, etc. Uh, so I would love to see Christchurch have a homegrown opera company alongside the national company coming to town. The final track today is Halo, performed by Levance Colley, part of the postmodern jukebox setup. Michael told me after the interview that the most incredible experience at their live concerts in Christchurch was hearing this song live. The G-sharp above high C was like a bolt of electricity that surged through the audience. People literally jumped out of their seats. Michael's heard Levance sing it live twice now, and he'll never forget that moment. Remember those wild fields? Well, baby, they're tumbling down. They didn't even put up a fight. They didn't even make a sound. I found a way to let you in, but I never really had a doubt. Standing in the light of your halo, I got my angel now. It's like I've been awakened. Every rule I had you breaking. It's the risk that I'm taking. I ain't ever gonna shut you out. Everywhere I'm looking now, I'm surrounded by your embrace. Baby, I can see your halo.
Thank you for joining me today. This week's guest was Michael Bailey, General Manager of Showbiz Christchurch. They're about to put on Broadway Hitmen at Christchurch's Theatre Royal. You can find out more about Showbiz Christchurch and listen to this show again by visiting gardenofsound.nz. I mentioned at the start of the program there's a tasty treat from Taha up for grabs if you can answer the following question. Who did Michael understudy in Deflate a Mouse? That question again. Who did Michael Bailey understudy in Deflate a Mouse? Head along to gardenofsound.nz and look for the win tab. The first correct entry will win a tasty treat from Taha Sparkling Tonic. And please do put July 17th in your calendar. That's when the first Garden of Sound live gig will be happening at Littleton Records. If you're at high school, you're in a band, and you've got at least a couple of original songs under your belt, or you know of a group who you think fits the bill, I want to hear from you. Just head to gardenofsound.nz and look for the Garden of Sound live link. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm Ian Turner, and this has been Garden of Sound, with thanks to Taha Sparkling Tonic.